You're listening to the sermon series, Dangerous Prayers, at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christ-likeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray, search us, break us, unite us, and send us. If you want to stand with me, uh, we're going to continue in our series this morning uh, on dangerous prayers. We're going to actually conclude with the final prayer um, that we'll look at today. We looked at the first week. Uh, Kevin did a great job of preaching on uh, Psalm 139 on search me. Um, Then we talked through Psalm 51 of uh, break me. We looked at John 17 with Pastor Nick of unite us. And now we have the culmination of send us. Um, looking at Isaiah chapter 6. For those who are new um, in your program, this is written out for you, but I encourage you, have the Word of God with you. Let's look at the Word of God together. Um, the Bibles are in the back pews if you need them, um, but please, yeah, let's, let's look at the Word of God, God together. I think it's important to be in the Word as often as we can, but if you can't do that for whatever reason, there's, a, there's it printed out in your bulletin. All right, here we go. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord as it is read to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were flying, were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew by. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth and shut and with it and said, Now this has touched your lips, your iniquity is, re- is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening and do not understand. Keep looking but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and mind. Uh, blind their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be, uh, it will be burned again, like the tent tenerbeth or the oak that leaves the stump when failed. The holy seed is the stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I think the year was 2015. I was going at Princeton University, going through a very hard season of my life, a lot of turmoil in the ministry that I was a part of. And it was the summertime. And you know, in the summertime, you know what that means. It means vacation, relaxation. But for me, it wasn't just a summer of relaxation. It was a, it was a summer of reconnecting with my God. You see, I didn't know at the time that the things that I was going through, um, I'm the type of person where I put my head down and I just keep plowing through 
and not taking care of myself or not thinking about how the things that I am experiencing actually affect me. And it was in this summer that I picked up a book, a a random book that I didn't think anything about. It's called, it's a a book that you might know by a famous author named A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. He has this book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I read the first sentence and my whole world turned upside down. The first sentence read this way. It says this, when what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You see, we're in a series entitled Dangerous Prayers, and it's dangerous because these prayers are disruptive. Each of these prayers is asking, they're pleading with God that he would disrupt our status quo in one way or another, much like he did in mine in the summer of 2015. You see, to pray as Isaiah Isaiah did, here I am, send me, is more than asking God to bless our plans. You remember the definition we've given for this series about dangerous prayers. Here's the definition. should be on the board behind me. If not, just listen closely. The definition of how we've defined a dangerous prayer is simply this. A dangerous prayer is an earnest prayer that is spoken to God, allowing God to be God on your behalf. Say it one more time. A dangerous prayer is an earnest prayer that is spoken to God, Allowing God to be God on your behalf. In other words, it's it's taking our hands off the reins of our lives. Putting whatever plans we might have on, on the table and simply saying, Lord, edit my plans to your will. It is pleading with God that he might choose to use us in his plans of redemption. It is to pray, however you want to use me, whatever you want to do through me, Wherever you want me to send me and whomever you want to send me to, have your way, Lord. I don't know what it might cost me. I don't care what I might have to go through to get it. It doesn't matter. I'm in, Lord. You see, to pray God send me is to relinquish the reins of our lives and offering our lives as a blank check to God with no strings attached. So here's the question. How do we get there? How do we get there? I want to look to you uh, with a famous passage in Isaiah 6 that we just read. And I want to look at that question. How do we get to this point of saying, God, send me? The outline is in your program. I think it's, 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 it's broken up into four quadrants. The first Verses 1 through 4, we, uh, Isaiah was sent out because of the glory of God. You see this in verses 1 through 4. Then in verse 5, you see the gravity of guilt. In verses 6 and 7, you see the goodness of grace. And then finally, in verse 8, you see the greatness of God's call. Will you pray with me? Father, we do praise you and thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would go before us. Take my little, make much of it. Glorify your name as only you can. We love you and praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, what I learned from that small little sentence that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us is this, is that our vision of God always determines our pursuit of him. If you don't see God rightly, you will not pursue God rightly, amen? You see, our text begins with Isaiah doing something very familiar and mundane. 
He went up to the temple to worship God, much like us today. He gathered to the place of God to worship God with the people of God. You see, Isaiah was a good Christian. He believed and worshiped God. We know that through the first five chapters. So this was not Isaiah's conversion story. This was not Isaiah becoming a Christian. What this was was Isaiah seeing and being encountered and being empowered and overwhelmed by the one true living God. You see, his faith was rooted in sound doctrine, and he served God faithfully. But what he experienced on this day turned his life upside down, and it changed his life forever. It was the catalyst that led him to offer his life as a blank check before God and saying, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Isaiah encountered God. And guess what? He encountered God and actually um, a place he didn't expect to meet God, which was in the temple. <laughs> Isn't it funny that we can come to God's gathering each, each and every Sunday? We can come to Sunday school. We can go to prayer meeting. We expect to see friends and faces, but the one person we don't expect to show up is God. You see, the last person Isaiah actually expected to see that day showed up unexpectedly, without permission, without reservation, And this is a good reminder for all of us that God doesn't need your permission to show up in your life. God doesn't have to make plans. God doesn't have to get on your calendar to have an appointment with you. He entered into Adam's life in the cool of the day in Genesis 3 after Adam had sinned. In Genesis 6, he entered Noah's life in the midst of a chaotic and rebellious world. In Genesis 11, he entered into Abraham's life immediately after his father had died. In Genesis, Exodus 3, he entered Moses' life when he was a fugitive on the run, running from the greatest world power known at the time, Egypt, for killing an Egyptian. You see, God doesn't need your permission to enter into your life. Let's not get it twisted. Isaiah went to the temple of God to be with the people of God, and the one person he didn't expect to show up was God himself. Lord, have mercy on us when we come to church and don't expect God to show up. Lord, have mercy on us when we come here under the preaching of God's word, surrounded by those who are saved. And the Bible says that, it says it clearly, let, let, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We hear the praises of God's people. We take communion, we hear sermons, we shake hands, but we don't expect God to show up. This is a good question for all of us. Is God a reality or is he simply a concept in your mind? Is God a reality or is he simply a concept in your mind? Because on this day, at this time for Isaiah, God became a reality. Let me talk to you a little bit about the symptoms of God existing as merely a concept If you only think God as a concept and not as a reality, this might apply to your life. We might pray to him. Don't get me wrong. We might still pray to him. We might still learn about him, but we do so just in the same way we we would do in in a science class. where We learn about the physical, beautiful aspects of nature, but we never actually um, think that those things will actually affect us on a daily basis. It's good information. It's good knowledge. But it really doesn't apply. 
You see, our faith tends to be more of a philosophy for life rather than a living, dynamic relationship with the living God. And it's not that we don't believe in God. We just believe in the wrong God. We believe in a God who's small, who's predictable, who's safe, and who's manageable. We lose any notion that God is alive and active in our world. I love how Dr. Uh, Martin Lord-Jones says it in this way. He quotes it this way. He says this. He says, we go to God's house, not with the idea of meeting with God, not with the idea of waiting upon him. It never crosses our minds that something may happen. The idea that God may suddenly visit his people and descend upon them. The whole thrill of being in the presence of God and sensing his nearness and his power never enters into our imaginations. There is no conception that God may suddenly meet with us and that something tremendous may happen. We must examine ourselves. How often does this vital idea enter into our minds that we are in the presence of the living God, that the Holy Spirit is in the church, that we may feel the touch of his power? Is there, is, is there not this appealing danger that we must just uh, be content because we have correct beliefs? We expect nothing, we get nothing, and nothing happens to us. Very well said, Dr. Jones. So now I helped you to understand maybe some concepts of, of, of merely seeing God as a concept. Let's look at verses one through four to look at symptoms of being awakened to the reality of God. Notice with me, verse, the first thing we see in verse four is this word. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, underline that, we'll come back there. But the first word I want you to circle is, I saw. I saw. You see, no one has ever seen God, because God is spirit. And this is a good reminder for all of us that you, we can't see God apart from God revealing himself to us. Now, Isaiah, you went to church, you went with church folks, you're not expecting to see God, but somehow you saw God. How, that doesn't make sense, Isaiah. How did you see God? You see, Isaiah saw God not because he was so good, not because he was so kind, not because he was so perfect. He saw God because God has graciously chosen to reveal his goodness, his kindness, and his perfection to Isaiah. I think that deserves an amen. And this is a reminder for all of us. This is a reminder for all of us that if you can see God, if you are in a good relationship with God right now, you are feeling his presence, it's not because of your goodness that those things are happening to you. It is only because of his goodness that those things are happening to you. Ephesians 2 says it this way, for we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from ourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Let me go on the other side. Maybe some of you even around here, maybe you can't see God. Maybe you can't feel him. Maybe he is a con uh, just a concept to you. And, and let me give you a little bit of encouragement. It, it is not just because of your inability. And it's not just because of your sin. That does factor into it, but it's not extremely all because of that. And we'll see why coming up very shortly. But it also may be because of your expectation. You see, look at verse 1 with me. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw. 
This is so important that that Isaiah put this in here, this aspect of the death of King Uzziah, because at this point in Israel's history, Uzziah was not a perfect king, but he was a king that was used by God to bring the people's heart from idolatry and back to God. And when he died, guess what happened to Isaiah? Hopelessness, despair, longing for God's solution. In the midst of Isaiah's brokenness, in the midst of Isaiah longing and wanting more for his life, in the midst of Isaiah being in a hopeless situation, guess who showed up? God himself. Because only God can give you the ability to see him for himself. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. If you are in a good place with God, it's because of God. (laughs) If you're in a bad place with God and you feel like he's far away, Look to God. No matter where you are, God is the solution. Amen? God, and this is my prayer for us as a church, as a pastor of this church. God, give us eyes and give us an expectation to see you clearly. Give us eyes and give us an expectation. My... My hope for us as a church is that we can't wait to get into this place. That you will be be running over each other to get into this place because we come with an expectancy to hear, to know, and to see God. Not to hear from Pastor Fields, not to hear from Pastor Nick, but to see the one true and living God, not just in a spiritual sense, but see God in one another. That I can look to my brother's hug and I can look to my sister's prayers. And I can look to those who are sitting in this room and be reminded of the goodness, the kindness, and the awesomeness of my God. Amen? Amen. This is my prayer. This is our prayer. God, give us eyes. Give us an expectation to see you clearly. What did Isaiah see? Look with me in verse 1b. He says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his garment filled the temple. Notice before that, the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. You see, God is high and lifted up in his own nature. He is exalted or lifted up by the acknowledgement of his own supremacy. No one put God there. Even though Isaiah came to the temple with no expectation expectation from God, God was still sitting on the throne, amen? God is always in the place of, of sovereignty and of majesty and of glory. If you acknowledge that or not, God is still God. But the goodness of God is that he invites you into the reality that is. This space is a place in which we come together to be reminded of the reality that is. God is on the throne. He's high and lifted up. I know your situation may look bad. I know your bank account may be negative right now, but God is high and lifted up, and he's on the throne. I know your marriage is in disarray. I know y'all talking about divorce, but God is seated on the throne. I know your kids are not, to, are not listening to you to right now. They're actually going rebellious, but God is on the throne. Amen. And because he's on the throne and because he's seated, we have a God who's an advocate who fights for us. 
and who loves us and who died for us and who's coming again for us. Amen? It says the hem of his garment filled the temple. Notice the, the hem. <laughs> I didn't have a chance to study this, but I imagine it's, it's a very small part of the garment. The hem of his garment filled the temple. Notice here, temple is repeated a couple of times. This is the first time. Temple is no mere symbol. Temple is supposed to remind us of where the Lord is. That where the Lord is, the very hem, the smallest thing on his garment, fills the temple. The, the most minute thing fills the place where we're supposed to meet God. How great and wonderful and awesome is our God. Amen. Notice with me in verse 1b, it says the hem of his robe filled the temple. In 4b, it says the temple was filled with smoke. The flowing robe points to the place where the transcendent Lord touches the earth. The Lord is present in all his majesty at the center of his people's life. God, I love what Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says. It says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof the earth and all those who dwell therein. Notice what he also saw. He not just saw the Lord filling up the place, the Lord taking up occupancy in the place. Notice what he also see in verse two. Seraphim were standing above him. Now seraphim here means burning ones. It's mentioned only here in the Bible. This aspect of these angels or these, these ministering angels called seraphim who are there to worship him. And it's a good reminder for us that fire is always the chief symbol used to describe the holiness of God. Whenever God comes close, whenever God wants to come near, we always see fire, not just as a thing of condemnation, but it's a thing of holiness. It reminds us that our God is other, that we can't come near him just because we want to come near him, just like you can't go near fire just because you want to go near fire. It has to be made a way. It has to be made a provision for you to enter in. I love what it says here. It says they were flying around. Um, earlier it says that the whole, um, it says that, <clears throat> verse 3, they cried out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. See, I don't know about you, but glory is one of the hardest topics to preach on. It's hard, it's difficult, and I'm not going to try to do it even now, but uh, it, it, and the reason why it's difficult, because it stretches beyond the limitations of human language. It extends beyond one, one's creative ability in charades, and it engulfs our understanding, and it overwhelms our comprehension. God's glory is simply this. It's the sum of God's power and his perfection. It is the sum of God's power and his perfection. It is the weight and the beauty of all that he is. And words fail us to describe it. I remember summer of 2014, I had the great uh, opportunity to go to my first overseas mission. I got to go to the motherland, Africa. Um, I love going there. It was wonderful. I went to Uganda. I went to a small little village named Mwanga. You can't even find it on the map. I, wasn't, I was so, so discreet, you couldn't even find me on the map. I loved it. It was great. And here's some pictures that I, I took on my trip <coughs> um, to Africa. 
Oh, it's already up. This is up here uh, at, at, in, in the village of Mwanga at the very top of the mountain. That's me with my, my hat on, trying not to get sunburned uh, in, in, that, in that hot heat. But you can just see, you can't even see it from here, but you can't see the vastness as, as far as the eye could see, mountains and beauty and the glory that was there. You see also in the next picture, this is Pastor Paul and his wife that so, um, so graciously hosted us the entire week. He actually allowed me to preach at the church, which is my first time preaching uh, through a translator, which is a lot of fun. And then and this is the next picture. I think this is one of the villages here. Yeah, this is one of the villages uh, here uh, with Jake, a student at Dartmouth who went with us on that trip. Now, I, I'm telling you, if I, can, if I could try to describe the beauty that I saw um, in Africa, words, words would fail to comprehend the beauty, the majesty that was there. And if words fail to capture the beauty, the majesty, and the gravity of God, the creator, how much will words fail to compare the beauty, the majesty, and the gravity of God as, um, as our creator? Verse 3 says this. It says, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Notice that the angels declare what we cannot describe. And the only way they can describe it is with three words, holy, holy, holy. And what he's saying there is this is like in nothing you've ever seen. Holiness is not just about perfection. Holiness is about distinction. This is the only time in the Bible that we have these repetition of three words, holy, holy, holy. See, notice when God exists as a concept, the idea of praying, send me or use me, never seems to cross our mind. Yet when you encounter God in his glory, it shakes you up. Look at verse 4. It says, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is a good reminder that there's a weight to this God. God changes everything and everyone else in his world. I love what Isaiah 66 1 says in regards to God's um, grandeur. It says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me and what is the place of rest? See, God, Isaiah encountered God in his glory and his eyes were immediately opened to the ultimate reality of God as being our, so our sovereign king, to the one who rules over all things. His eyes were opened to the ultimate reality of God, and that was the catalyst that led him to pray, send me. My life is a blank check. Check before you, Lord. Send me as you wish. So how do we experience an encounter like this with like Isaiah? Remember verse 1, he had a vision. Now listen, you probably won't have a vision. Some of you might have, have visions. I'd love to talk to you about those visions if you have one. I actually talked to a brother this morning that had a vision um, and dream. Um, but I don't want to diminish visions and dreams because the, the Bible says in Joel that in the last days, yeah, people will have visions and dreams. So we could talk about that and pray through those things as we need to. But most of us probably won't have a vision like Isaiah. However, we have the Spirit of God. And we have the word of God in order for God to be seen clearly in our lives. Amen. You see, God doesn't need to be revealed. God simply needs to be remembered. 
He needs to be remembered that the word of God not only recounts his works in this world, but it reveals who he is and his spirit gives us eyes to see him clearly. Brothers and sisters, beloved, it's 2020. It's the beginning of a new year. Get in his word. Not simply to learn information, but to encounter the living, speaking, wonderful God that is in the scriptures. And don't just read the Bible in a year. How about reading through the Bible at whatever pace you want to read it at? (laughs) How about that? Read the Bible. Get into the word. If you want to be a people who meaningfully play, Lord, use me, Lord, send me, my life is a blank check, you must encounter and encourage regularly the holiness and glory of God in our lives. How about this? Before you read it, because that's so simplistic, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bible, and ladies, if you have a purse, I want you to get a Bible, not, not like one of those thick, thick Bibles, but I want you to get a Bible that's small enough and discreet enough to put in your purse. And the first step to reading God's Word is not simply reading it. The first step to God's Word is having it on you at all times. Just have the Word with you. Not on your phone, because our phone distracts us. Our sister texts us, our mama texts us, and we get distracted. Keep the Word of God with you at all times. Fellas, if you carry book bags or if you carry uh, uh, other things or wallet, get a Bible and just keep it on your person. That's the first step. The second step is simple. Ask God to make time for you to read the Word. Ask Him. He'll make time. You'll, listen, you, ladies, you go to go get your nails done. And, and yeah, y'all laughing because y'all probably just, y'all, y'all got an appointment right now. Like, when is this guy going to get done? I got to get my pedicure and manicure. Um, take the Bible with you, and when you go get your nails done, they may be running late, 10, 15 minutes. That's your time to get in the Word. Fellas, you go to get your hair cut. Guy in front of you got all those designs in his head, taking a little longer than you want. You got your Bible to get into it. Have it on you. The first step is having it on you. Because when you have it on you, there's no excuse for you not to get in it. The second thing is ask God to give you time. Make time, Lord. Help me to find time. Help me to find time. He'll do it, I promise. He he did it for me. I'm sure I know he'll do it for you. Notice in verse 5, the gravity of guilt. I want you to notice four things as um, as we move on. Notice Isaiah's response. His first response was not, oh my goodness, isn't this wonderful? Or isn't he wonderful? His first response wasn't, wow. His first response was not, I deserve this. Oh, how great am I? His first response was in verse 5, what? Woe is me. Woe. Isaiah feels his smallness before God. And we should feel small when we encounter God's glory in creation. Excuse me, we feel small when we encounter God's glory in creation through the mountains, oceans, and great heights and great beauty. How much smaller should we feel in the presence of our Creator? I had a great opportunity of traveling from New Jersey to Kentucky for the last, a year ago. A year ago, actually, a year ago now. I was traveling two, two, two times a month, coming here preaching. And I had a great opportunity to be at the Palmer's house, Debbie and Clint Palmer, and they were so gracious to host me. But one thing I love about Debbie, Debbie's a wonderful hostess, but one thing I love about her going to her house is that in her kitchen she has this sign that says, no one stands before the Grand Canyon and think how great am, how great am I. And I love that. It's such a great illustration, right? No one stands before the beauty and the majesty and glory of God's creation and say, you know what? 
I see this Grand Canyon, but man, you know what? I'm, I'm sure I'm a good person. I'm, 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 I'm much more greater than, than what's before me. This is the same thing and the same kind of sentiment that is being sent out. This is a good reminder, a sign, a sign that you've encountered God is feeling small before him. Now, notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying shame. Not shame, but guilt. Not strength, but weakness. Not confidence, but humility. Not independence, but dependence. Feeling small before God is is like feeling empty before a full fountain. It is like recognizing your need and seeing God as your only resource. Feeling small before God is knowing your limitations before a limitless God. And notice with me that he just doesn't feel small. He also feels sinful. Look with me in verse 5. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. See, when we get into the presence of God's absolute holiness and righteousness, we can't help but feel our sinfulness. And here's the reality. The only way to experience God's prayer, send me in verse 8, is to go through what he experiences in verse 5. Feeling the smallness and feeling the sin and the weight of our sin before an all-consuming and all-holy God. Look with me in verses 6 and 7 as we look at the goodness of grace. He says here, he says, And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that had been taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Notice with me a couple of things. One is this. The angel brings a coal from the altar. What is an altar? An altar was not a piece of furniture in the temple. An altar was a place where the blood of sacrifice was spilled. Notice with me that God sends an angel to bring a burning coal from the altar. He used tongs because it was an actual fire. (laughs) He couldn't just put his hand in there and get it. It was really hot and it was really present. Notice what Isaiah doesn't do. Isaiah doesn't move towards the altar with the sacrifice. He's not self-determined to go there himself. He actually doesn't even know what he needs in this very moment. Isaiah doesn't lay down his body on the altar as a sacrifice in a a sense of self-deprival. He doesn't even ask God to provide a sacrifice in the act of self-denial. What Isaiah does is what we all should do in the very presence of God. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. And as the cold touched Isaiah's lips, the angels declare, your guilt is taken away from you. Your sin is atoned for. This is grace defined. That's grace. God provides what Isaiah needs. He gives what Isaiah cannot provide for himself, and he gives despite Isaiah's inability and undeserving nature. God takes the initiative and moves towards Isaiah in grace, in forgiveness, and in healing. I love this. This is what grace is defined. Grace is God giving you what you simply don't deserve. And every day we need to pray this prayer over our lives. God, I need your grace. I need you to give me what I don't deserve, Father. I need you to give it to me. I can't earn it, but I need you to give it. God's grace is what is needed. 
And notice with me that the atonement immediately leads to reconciliation. The atonement immediately leads to reconciliation. Because now that his sins have been atoned for, now he can clearly hear the voice of God. I love how John 17, 3 uh, defines eternal life. It says this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, the one whom you, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. See, God desires from the very beginning has always been about relationship. It's always about relationship. That's why he asked Adam that great question. Where are you, Adam? He doesn't ask him, what have you done? He doesn't ask him, why did you do it? He didn't even ask him, what, why did you do it or what are you going to do about it? He doesn't ask him about the responsibility of what he's done. He doesn't ask him the reason of why he did it. And he didn't ask him to provide restitution for what he's going to do about it. The one question God asked Adam in the very uh, early pages of Scripture is the most important question that we need to hear God asking us time and time again, where are you? And not in the question of location, it's a question of proximity. Where are you in relationship to me? See, God always pursues us despite our sinfulness. He entered into Adam's life in the cool of the day, and he provided covering for his nakedness. He didn't enter into Abraham's life after the ultimate death of his father, Terah, and he adopted and called him a, fa a fatherless man to be the father of many nations. He entered Noah's life in the midst of a chaotic and rebellious world and told him to build an ark on dry land. He entered Moses' life when he was a fugitive. And who, a man, Moses was a man who had a heart for justice, but he couldn't lead God's people until he met the God of justice to faithfully lead them away from their oppressors. It's a good question I would love for us to think even this, this week as we jump into community groups. At what moment in your life did the grace of God move from being a theory to, an experience, to a reality for you? At what point in your life did the grace of God move from being a, simply a theory or a concept to an actual reality in your life? See, this is grace exemplified. Isaiah experienced God moving towards him despite his sin. You see, grace is not God lowering his standards. Grace gave what truth demanded, the sacrifice of a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. This shadow became a reality when Jesus Christ stepped into the world, not to judge, but to heal, not to condemn, but to save, and not to demand, but to serve. Look with me in verse 8 at the greatness of God's call. It says, Then I heard a voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Two things as we close, I want to just talk about this, is that missions has always been God's idea because God has always been the first missionary. He was the first one to take initiative towards Adam despite his sin. Despite his sin. God is always the first one to take action in regards to mission. It's his idea. The second thing I want us to know is that mission is God's work. Mission is God's work. Let's go back to the first thing. Mission is God's idea. Notice God's question. Who should I send? Who will go for us? Notice, we go on behalf of God. We go representing God. We go as what um, antiquity in, in um, ancient times talks about a vice regents. We go as, as one. We go among a people or um, a, a territory in order to represent the king in his stead. 
We are vice regents on this earth. We are people who act in the name of another, a person who acts for a regent or for a king. We are vice regents in this world, and we go on behalf of God, representing God. Notice Isaiah's response. Here I am. Send me. Notice what Isaiah says. Serving God goes from an obligation to an opportunity. See, we wrongly think of engaging in God's work as something we're supposed to do, as something as an obligation, or something that we have to do in order to get things from God. That, God, if I go on missions, then I can get these things from you. Or I'm just supposed to do this because I was told by the pastor in the church that I'm supposed to do this. It's not, missions is not an aspect of obligation. It's not an aspect of, of appeasement. Our going always is done in response to his grace. Not as an act of obligation, not as an act of a means to please God, and not as a means to earn his favor or his grace. To pray, send me, is not us graciously extending our hand to God to help him. Rather, it is God graciously extending his hand towards us. It is pleading with God that he would choose us and use us despite our sins and shortcomings. It is accepting God's desire for you to play a small part in his eternal work of redemption within his created order. Imagine with me really quickly if you had a desire to go to college, let's say the University of Louisville, Princeton University, Rutgers, wherever, wherever you may go, but you just simply couldn't pass the SAT or the ACT to get there. And someone comes up to you and says, you know what? This is illegal, so don't think this is real. I'm going to go and I'm going to take the SAT for you. I'm actually, I'm going to not only do that, I'm going to pass it and give you a great scholarship. And because I know you can't go to college and you can't really keep that scholarship because of your academic um, inaptitude, I'm going to go to college on your behalf and I'm going to take all the courses, I'm going to take all the exams, I'm going to do everything that's required of you in college for four years, and after I'm done, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the degree. Now listen, <laughs> your pastor has some aspirations for some further education. So if somebody came to me and said, hey, I go to X, Y, and Z school for, to get a PhD for you, hey, I might have to, I might, no, I wouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> but it's appealing, right? It's appealing. It's appealing. Think of it in the same way with, with Christ, right? Christ knew we couldn't. We didn't have the aptitude to do what God requires. So guess what he did? He did it on our behalf. But not only did he do it on our behalf, he gave us the benefits of doing what he did, even though we didn't do it. Now, if someone did that for you, what would be your response? Hey, thanks for doing that. See you later. I appreciate what you all you've done. You gave me a great degree. I'm going to go take it, make my six figures, and I'm going to be on my way. You know what you're going to do? Hopefully, what prayer, you're going to be one, be thankful and be gratitude to that person. But you're also going to want to know that person and learn from them of all the knowledge that you didn't get to know, that they know. Because now you got the degree. The degree's in my name. So people are looking at me like I got this degree, even though I didn't earn it. And I have to look to the one who did earn it to understand even what this degree means and what this thing entails. We need God to show us the great gift that he's given us in Christ. We need his word. We need his spirit. We need him to come alongside us and show us, teach us, remind us 
of who he is and this great gift of salvation that he's provided that honestly is too big for our britches. It's too big for our britches. The last thing I want to share with us, and I'll, I'll be on my way. Missions is God's work. You see, we are sent out because he was sent down. Thank you, Pastor Nick. <laughs> We're sent out because he was sent down. And this is a very important message because this intersects with our value of multi-ethnicity. Very, very important. So please listen to me if you've been toning me out. Listen to me at least at this point. Two things I want you to know. What we do matter, representing God. We go proclaiming him and not ourselves. But the second thing that matters is how we do it matters. How we do it matters. Jesus sent us to make disciples, not duplicates. We are not going out to make duplicates of ourselves in this world in the name of Christ. We are going to make disciples, not duplicates. It's a hard thing, but this is what the gospel calls us to. And it calls us to because Jesus gave us the ultimate example. Think of Jesus coming to earth, having a 30-year preparation for a three-year ministry. If, some, if I ask you right now, hey guys, I got a job for you, one of y'all. But it's going to take about 30 years to prepare, and you're only going to do it for three years. Anybody, any takers? No, nobody's going to raise their hand. Uh, I wouldn't raise my hand like that. That's too much. But guess who rose? Jesus rose his hand at that, at that invitation. That, Father, I'm going to be prepared for 30 years. 30 years of going to the synagogue, hearing, hearing sermons that you know you can preach better. 30 years of going to going to the carpenter's house, seeing people make things that you know you can make better. 30 years of seeing brokenness and sinfulness and, and, and diseases all around you, knowing that you can heal them, but not healing them until it's your time. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. See, Jesus didn't come down here to try to make, these, make, make, make this world as, I, as I'm the Savior, I'm going to heal this and I'm going to heal that. Jesus came and prepared himself for ministry. He, he came 30 years learning, being involved, seeing, understanding, growing in wisdom and knowledge before God and before men in order to have the most dynamic, impactful, eternal ministry this world has ever known in three years. You see, our agenda as a church is to go, and it's, it is his agenda entrusted to the universal church not assumed by a continent or a certain tradition. I love what even this week a pastor wrote in together um, for the Gospel Coalition. He wrote about this, an African pastor in Zambia. Listen to his words about mission, mission work um, in his area. He says, an unfortunate result of ignorance about African culture is a tendency to label everything African as evil. Consciously or unconsciously, Western missionaries deem their own culture both superior and biblical. This is not only wrong, for the outcome is ministries and churches in depths of Africa that appear to have been transplanted from New York or London. 
Sadly, this encourages the false notion that Christianity is a white man or Western religion when Western missionaries are, uh, when Western missionaries are humble enough to listen, learn, and, be, and build sincere, transparent, and healthy relationships amidst diversities, they will display the power of the gospel before the watching world. Somebody needs to say amen. amen. We are sent out to make disciples not duplicates, not duplicates. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.